This summer, we are in a series listening to stories. Stories that Jesus told. Stories that he called parables. And in acting, there's a phrase called breaking the fourth wall. Where when you're in a theater, theatrical production or in television or something, you have the, the three walls on your side and the one behind you, and your job is never to look into the camera as if to look at the people that you're talking to. You're not supposed to break the fourth wall in front of you. Jesus, with every one of his stories, doesn't care about that conceit. He's about breaking the fourth wall in every one of them. He's about telling us stories that speak to our condition that speak to every condition in every era, even though they are both located in a very ancient time, using words and ideas that are reserved for that moment. He has come to tell us stories. Why? Why would he spend what few years of his public ministry that he had telling stories from images and ideas that were familiar and at hand to all those who listened. We might understand in some way why he'd do it from a purely pedagogical standpoint. Why would he tell those stories? Let me, let me offer you a suggestion to an answer to that question. And I'd like to do so by reprising a scene. It's not been so long since we saw it. It's from that wonderful film called Stranger Than Fiction. Uh, Will Ferrell is the protagonist of the story, of the film, Uh, He is a very deliberate and meticulous kind of individual, but he is starting to hear a voice, and that voice is beginning to describe his every action in real time or anticipate the actions he's about to commit, and he's wondering if he's going nuts because the story, the, the narration to his life is just spot on, and it's driving him crazy, and so he's wondering Am I really here in this real world, or is there somebody narrating my story? And so his only idea to figure out what's going on is to go to a professor of literature at a local college, played by Dustin Hoffman. And here in this scene, the professor of literature, who's very intrigued by this man's rather bizarre story, this bizarre experience, he's trying to figure out maybe he is in a story, and he just doesn't know what story that is. So listen to the professor try to help Will Ferrell try to figure out what's going on in this moment. One, has anyone recently left any gifts outside your home? (laughs) Anything, gum, money, a large wooden horse? I'm sorry? Just answer the question. No. Do you find yourself inclined to solve murder mysteries in large, luxurious homes to which you... Let me finish. To which you may or may not have been invited. No, no, no. On a scale of one to ten, what would you consider the likelihood you might be assassinated? Assassinated? One being very unlikely, ten being expecting it around every corner. I have no idea. Let me rephrase. Are you the king of anything? Like what? Anything. King of the lanes at the local bowling alley. King of the lanes? King of the lanes. King of the trolls. Uh, uh, King uh, of the trolls? Yes. A a clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. No. Huh? No. It's ridiculous. Agreed. But let's start at ridiculous and move backwards. Now, was any part of you at one time part of something else? Like, do I have someone else's arms? Well, is it possible at one time that you were made of stone, wood, lye, buried corpse parts, or birth made holy by rabbinical elders? No, look, look. Uh, I'm sorry, but what do these questions have to do with anything? Nothing. The only way to find out what story you're in is to determine what stories you're not in. Odd as it may seem, I've just ruled out half of Greek literature. 
seven fairy tales, ten Chinese fables, and determine conclusively that you are not King Hamlet, Scout Finch, Miss Marple, Frankenstein's monster, or a golem. Hmm? Aren't you relieved to know you're not a golem? Yes, I am relieved to know that I'm not a golem. Good. Do you have magical powers? The point of that hilarious scene, though, is rather poignant, right? If we're going to find out what story we're in, we've got to rule out all the stories that we're not in. And that matters. And there are all sorts of ideas for the way in which the world works, which is just another way of saying what story you're in. And if you don't know what story you're in, you don't know how to live in it. Jesus is here to tell us stories, not to entertain us, but to help us to know what is that big story that we're in. And also to help us to know what it means to live inside of that big story. The story that he's going to tell us today is so familiar to us that it is very likely we will glaze over in the hearing of it. And so to set that story with a, a very different kind of seriousness by way of preface, Stacy Chacon sent me an article over the weekend by a guy named Kevin Antlitz. He's a Christian. He's an artist. And he recently visited the Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem. And as he saw that place of great horror, he asked himself, how is it that we as humans, who are capable of astonishing beauty, are just as capable of committing both great cruelty, but even worse, falling into great indifference. The Holocaust never would have happened simply at the hands of military men. Too many people in too many places would have to turn a blind eye and just think, that's just what they do. That's just who we are. What is to be done about us who can commit great beauty, but also great tragedy, but also more likely great indifference? That's a worrisome thing. How can Thomas Jefferson, whose Declaration of Independence we may have celebrated on Thursday, be the same person who owned people as if they were property? Who am I, who's the pastor of this church? In what ways will history come back and look at me and go, how in the world could he fill in the blank? These are questions we ask ourselves. These are questions that beg for a story to help ferret out what is going on in us. And therefore, we're going to listen to a story that Jesus has for us today that actually raises certain questions that everybody's asking whether you believe in God or not. And also ventures answers that in some way or form answers the same answer that everybody answers whether you believe in God or not. And it also speaks of a posture in this life, an inclination that we all wrestle with and yet we know is the key to a life that's beautiful whether you believe in God or not. So we're going to hear this very familiar story, but I pray as if we've never heard it before. So if you're able to stand, we're in Luke chapter 10. We'll start in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this. You will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go, do likewise. This is the unequivocal word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's a familiar story. It's an ancient story, and it trades in ancient categories, but I am here to suggest to you on the front end that it is asking questions and giving answers and speaking to a posture that everybody has an interest in. This whole moment begins with a very good question, and most good stories begin with a good question. They provoke something. And here, in this moment, you have a religious scholar referred to here as a lawyer, the one who knows the law backwards and forwards. And he is there with with enough respect for Jesus to at least describe to him the name teacher. But he's out to test him. He's got an ulterior motive. And he's out to ask this question. What, teacher, shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is that life, he's asking, that is set apart, that is exalted, that is not just one that sits back and laughs watching the world burn? What is that life? Now, if you look in the Old Testament and you study it, the idea of an afterlife, it's it's very subtle, if not even nondescript, in much of the Old Testament. And then when you get into the prophets and you listen to the prophet Daniel, for instance, you hear the prophet Daniel saying this in chapter 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake and some to everlasting life. And what Daniel speaks of there is that there will be a moment when those who are dead, the dead who are righteous in him, they shall awake and they shall awake to an eternity. But that moment is spoken of as in the wake of a great trial that the people of God would experience. And so in Jesus' day, there were many who were thinking, ah, Israel is in a great trial. The land is occupied by these marauders named Romans. 
Surely the day is coming in which that day will end. And so here in this moment, this lawyer would want to get up and want to speak with a question asking, what, is, what do I have to do to see that day when all things will be set right, when all things will be made clear and made good? And that is the question in his words that is finely tuned to the theology of that day. But here I'd like to suggest on the front end that that question is actually everybody's question. And by that I mean this. Look, if you're a Christian, if you are here today, you believe in Jesus, then um, what is that life that uh, is life that will prevail, that will endure, the life that is true life? That's the question we actually come to be reminded every time we gather in this room. But if you're not a Christian, if, if you have a certain respect for Jesus, but you just don't buy in to the fullness of it, there is still a part of you that is wondering, what is the life worth living? What is that life, like uh, Professor Keating in, in uh, Dead Poet Society says, if, if, um, life, is a, if, if life is a play, what, what may I do to contribute a verse? Or... Um, or the author for The Atlantic, the African-American man named ta Coates, he, he says to himself sometimes, sometimes I, just, I don't believe in God, but I, I just want to be the kind of guy that doesn't add to the darkness. Everybody's got that question in their minds, or maybe it's a question they want to avoid, but it's a question that's there. And therefore, what the, what the scholar is asking Jesus is a question that everybody is asking, regardless of your background. But here in that moment, uh, Jesus kind of sniffs out the scholar. and In in so many words, he's saying, ah, scholar, I see what you did there. I I know what you're doing. I I know you're trying to figure out uh, uh, who's got a real command of the law here. You're trying to put me in my place or show me that I don't know. So tell you what, uh, you want to show yourself knowledgeable, so you tell me. What What do you think you have to do to inherit eternal life? And the scholar is very glad to show forth his knowledge. So what does he do? He rattles it off. He says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Look, um, whatever uh, disparity or, or, or criticism we might want to throw on this person that's trying to put Jesus to the test, at least he has the summary of the law right at his fingertips. At least he understands enough of the scripture at that point to know what orients him to this life. And the question I ask myself is, do I? Do you? Jesus fights with the word of God. Do I? Do you? He lays that question, and then he provides that answer. And therefore, he is saying to us, the life that is life, the life that will endure, that will prevail, is the life that is in love with God and in love with neighbor That is the life where those two loves go hand in hand. They're distinct, but they're inseparable. And that is his answer to what is that exalted life that is set apart. Here again, I would suggest to you that his answer that he gives in the first century is in some ways very analogous to the answer that anybody on the street might give. Why do I say that? If you're a Christian, then you know that in other places in Scripture, Jesus himself will rattle off those same two texts from Deuteronomy and Leviticus to summarize the essence of the law. And therefore, what you just heard the scholars say is nothing that you haven't heard before, nothing that you might not be able to produce if somebody would ask you, what is the greatest commandment? You'd rattle those off. 
But if you're not a Christian, but you may just have some sort of appreciation for Jesus of having some sort of higher consciousness of him being a wise kind of sage, here's the thing. If I were to put you on the spot and ask you, how should we treat one another? Dollars to donuts, you're going to say something to the effect that we ought to have a great respect and kindness and show one another dignity and appreciation. You would say that. And you would say that's not just your opinion. You would say that that's a fact. And not only is it something that you can sort of alternatively sometimes abide by and sometimes set aside, you would say you're accountable to that idea. That you're responsible for demonstrating it. You think everybody in this room and even those outside of this room is worthy of respect and dignity even if you don't agree with them. You would say that, which means this. You believe that there is something larger than your own opinion, something greater, more as they, as they say, transcendent than just your idea of what is good that you subscribe to. You believe the reason for showing another respect is because you're answerable to something that's higher than yourself. You may not call it God. You may not call it wisdom. You may not even call it a philosophy, but you feel responsible to it. And here's the problem if you don't believe in God. You can't make a case for why you should show respect and dignity to somebody else other than it's just your opinion and that's just the way you feel. If you will ask atheists, like a guy named John Gray, he wrote a book recently called Seven Types of Atheism. If you will talk to sociologists who are atheists, like a guy named Steven Pinker, they will say to you that the idea of dignity, the idea of human rights is a fantasy. You have to make it up. You can assert it, you can proclaim it, you can go on the campaign trail and speak of it five times a day in five different states, but if science is your only thing, then dignity is in your imagination and nowhere else. And yet, if again, if I asked any of you in this room, or a lot of people outside of this room, why should we treat another with anybody respect? Well, we just should. This story is asking questions everybody's asking. This story is offering an answer that in some sense everybody has an agreement with, even, they don't, even if they don't agree in the exact same words. Here's where the plot thickens, though. Because a plot always thickens when it comes down to applying these very high-sounding words like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because it's at this moment that the scholar begins to feel a little awkward. Because when you think long and hard, as he is, about what is asked of him when it comes to loving your neighbor, gosh, that sounds so comprehensive. <laughs> uh, it sounds so exhausting. Love your neighbor as yourself? Like, and that's why he sits there and then kind of out to justify himself, out to, to reassure himself that he's in the right. He he asks Jesus another question. And uh, who is my neighbor? Who, who qualifies by that designation? Who, what, is, what really is the scope of my responsibility? Um, to, 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 to cast that sentence in another frame, it's kind of like the, the kid in class saying, um, yeah, is this going to be on the test? Do, is it like, do I have to do no all of that? Do, and when I read a book, do I really have to read the introduction? 
what's the scope of my responsibility? What, what, what's the bare minimum here? And um, friends, his question is my question. It, his question is our question. And in that moment, Jesus doesn't offer him a sentence or a sermon. He gives him a story. Why? Why a story? Because sometimes, and I think you will agree, and I think the number of billions of dollars that are given each year towards literature and film and musicals would attest to this idea is because sometimes stories can carry a load that a proposition cannot. And so Jesus, to answer that question, what is the scope of my responsibility, tells him and us a story. And that story is of a nameless, faceless, nondescript person who is on a 17-mile journey from a 2,400-foot uh, above-sea-level place to a 600-foot um, beneath-sea-level place, and it's through the badlands from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, think Tatooine. Uh, think sand people. Sand people who always ride in single file to hide their numbers, right? That kind of place. Badlands, Tatooine, sand people. He walks 17 miles, and he gets seized upon by these banditos that... Take him out, rob him, assault him, beat him up, and leave him half dead. We don't know a thing about him other than he has met what looks to be a very untimely end. And then what happens? Two people happen by, by chance, Jesus likes to put it. Who is it? A priest and a Levite. Hooray! The religious types, they're here. The ones who know the law so well. The ones who could rattle off Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 like the back of their hand and in their sleep. These ones surely will stop and help. And what do they do? Jesus says both of them, and he makes it very clear to say, despite the providential nature of the moment, he says they pass by on the other side. They steer clear. They give a wide berth. They tiptoe and then take off. And we see that and we go, what? If there's anybody that should have known, why, why'd they do that? And all you could do is theorize. And, and boy, there have been all sorts of different theories lined out. Why would a priest and a Levite walk by? I mean, leave it. I mean, some of them think, well, um, maybe they were afraid of getting jumped themselves. Ah, courage, right? Good. Um, maybe they were concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean because if you touch a corpse, then you can't participate in the worship of your people for a whole seven days. Okay, fine, but they passed by on the other side. They didn't even verify if the man is dead. They don't know if he's a corpse. They just jumped to that conclusion. The thing is, Jesus doesn't tell us why they did. It doesn't matter. The point he's trying to make is they passed by on the other side. And we look at that and we go, really? How could they? And then you and I kind of take a step back and remember what Jesus said about um, checking for the log in your own eye. Because in that moment, Jesus is depicting a posture, first in its opposite and about to be here in its accuracy, a posture that we all wrestle with when it comes to responding to need. Because in a moment like that, when it comes to any of us responding to need, we, we look around and we go, there is so much need. 
Mother Teresa says, when, you, when I look at the crowd, I see nothing. But when I see one, I see something important. But when I look around, I see all this need all around me. And, and there is, a, associated with so much of that need, this, this complexity to, like, how would I even get involved? And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, um, most of the time, we're not uh, stymied by the complexity of how to respond to the need. We're, we're mostly just hung up by the fact that we prefer to take care of people that are like us or more like us or close to us rather than people who are not like us or don't agree with us. That's, our brains work that way. Brain science shows you and I are more likely to attend to those who are like us and close to us than those who are different from us. And Jesus is out to attend to that issue. And so what does Jesus do? How does Jesus pop the bubble of our own self-concern and of our own assumptions about what it means to this, live in this exalted life? He puts an outsider in the place of the hero. And so he says there, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he didn't pass by another side. He had compassion. And everybody that's listened to Jesus at that moment tell this story, you know what they do? They either squint their eyes or furrow their brow or look at each other going, what did he say? Uh, surely he misspoke. <laughs> a Samaritan? Wait a minute. You know the story in John chapter 4 where the woman at the well meets Jesus. She's a Samaritan. Jesus starts talking to her, having a conversation with her, and she like, has to look at him kind of saying, you know that Jews don't associate with Samaritans, right? Chapter earlier in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends an advance team into a Samaritan town. He's on his preaching ministry. He sends them aside, sends them into a Samaritan town. They go in there to find somebody that will offer them welcome, and all they do is get rejection from the Samaritans. His disciples come back to Jesus, and they say, are you ready for us to pray down judgment and fire upon them? And Jesus says, cut it out. Shut your mouth. What is it about the Samaritans that makes everybody in that room and everybody in Israel practically so upset about Samaritans except Jesus? Well, seven centuries earlier, these Assyrian folk who come down from the north, they come and exile part of Israel, and some of those Assyrians intermarry with Israelites, and then they create their own sort of God and their own forms of worship, and they kind of reject what's going on in Jerusalem. And so Samaritans are seen by most Jews as half-breeds who are traitors, 25 years before this moment, a bunch of Samaritans come to Jerusalem on the Passover and send, throw a bunch of human bones into the temple courts, defiling the moment and the, and the Passover. So there's not a lot of love lost between Samaritans and Jews. And that's as far as I can get to helping you put your head around what's going on and why Jews are scandalized by Jesus picking a Samaritan to become a hero of the story. In our day, there might be all sorts of things that might scandalize people. If it's a person of color in the role of a Samaritan, it might scandalize people. If it's a Muslim, it might scandalize people. If it's a gay person, it might scandalize people. If it's somebody who did or did not vote for our current president, it might scandalize people. Pick one. Jesus is out to pick someone who's an outsider to confront the very prejudice that lies at the very center of too many Israelites' hearts. It's an ancient problem, but it's an everlasting problem, unfortunately. We don't associate with those who are not like us if left to ourselves, typically. But Jesus is speaking to prejudice 
in the service of something even greater. He is picking an unlikely hero to confront those who should know better about what it is to live the exalted life. And what he is out to tell us by way of this amazing little story is this. The exalted life stoops. It bends. It bends down. And the Samaritan, in Jesus' mind, is the perfect incarnation of the love of God and the love of neighbor at the same time. Because in a moment like that, what you see of that love for God and love for neighbor fused together is expressed in the form of compassion that expresses itself in mercy. And it is a posture that you and I all struggle with. Whether you believe in God or not, And yet it is a posture that deep down we think is really going to be essential to a life that is worth living. And in just a few words, this Samaritan demonstrates the posture of mercy with four features. What is mercy? It's an expression of compassion that is indiscriminate. We don't know a thing about this guy that gets beat up and left for dead on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know a thing about him. There is no description. All the Samaritan knows about this person is that he has a need. And because of that need, he responds. Mercy is indiscriminate. It begins with being indiscriminate. But mercy is also personal and present. It is not just a turn of phrase that Jesus uses to refer to the priest and Levite as those who passed by on the other side. And yet it is the Samaritan who does what? Who comes to him. It's personal. He's being present. He is with. And he binds him up. And he puts him on his burrow. And he takes him to an inn. That's personal. He doesn't outsource it. But mercy is also sacrificial. Uh, For whatever reason, it doesn't say why, but for whatever reason, this Samaritan was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. For some reason, he had some agenda. He has to set that agenda aside. And he's got to become inconvenienced. If you're going to ride a rocky trail, it's better to be on a beast of burden than to walk it yourself. That stuff hurts underneath your feet. What does he do? He lets his own feet be hurt so that this man might be able to get to an inn on his own without having to walk himself. He can't walk. Mercy is indiscriminate. Mercy is personal. Mercy is sacrificial. But mercy is also purposive. It is not kindness for kindness's sake. There's a goal, and that goal is restoration. The Samaritan doesn't do it to make himself feel better about himself. The Samaritan also doesn't show mercy to foster a dependency on this guy. Rather, he shows him mercy that he might be restored so that that man might actually do what he's doing in another time and pay it forward. Mercy is indiscriminate, it's personal, it's sacrificial, and it's purposive. It's the nature of mercy. And yes, look, there are all sorts of other variables and every story has its own particularities and nuances that require you to sort of modulate and and nuance the way you express that mercy in some way. Sometimes it is necessary to withhold mercy as an act of mercy. 
But if you just want to get a baseline of what the nature of mercy is, the nature of the exalted life is, you can do a lot worse than saying it's indiscriminate, it's personal, it's sacrificial, and it's um, purposive. A few months ago, there was a guy that came to UNCA to give a speech. His name is Brian Stevenson. Any of you go to that? Brian Stevenson is a criminal justice lawyer. He's been involved in working on death row cases for 20 or 30 years. He started the Equal Justice Initiative. It exists in Montgomery, Alabama. And here is a man who knows a lot about how a system can miss so profoundly and operate on the basis of premises that are not founded in truth. And at that speech he gave at UNCA, which he's given to all sorts of places all over this world, he says to change the world, it's four things to change the world. And if you listen to him give that talk, you think, dude, this guy's listened to the parable of the Good Samaritan in the back of his mind. Because in that speech, he said, first of all, there's power in proximity. When it comes to the criminal justice system or anything else, you can't make diagnoses. You can't offer prescriptions from a distance. You've got to get up close. There's power in proximity, he says. He also says, When it comes to trying to change the world, you always have to have hope because to meet the forces that are arrayed against a criminal justice system or anything else that's broken, you're going to be met with opposition. You're going to be met with betrayal. You're going to be met with disappointment and exasperation. There has to always be hope. You have to find a reason for hope. Thirdly, he says, you have to be willing to be inconvenienced and uncomfortable. In that speech, he spoke very candidly about going to represent a man in prison who was mentally challenged, but he's in the South, and he's a black man, and for him to go see his client, the guard made him submit to a strip search before he would let him see his client, which is both uncharitable and unlawful. But because he had a greater interest in the service of that person who'd been accused and wrongly convicted, he submitted to something that was unconscionable. Because he knows that's the way the system works. And that's the way the system will only change. And again, if you listen to those three points already, you think, this just sounds like the parable of the Good Samaritan. And because it is. But he said one other thing. That when I think about it, kind of stops me in my tracks. He says, if you're going to change the criminal justice system, or for that matter, you're going to change anything that's really systemically broken, you have to change the narrative. That's a kind of a a, a pat phrase these days. You've got to change the narrative. What is the narrative? In other words, what is the the accepted storyline out there that most people embrace, whether they've ever thought about it or not, that they just sort of uncritically accept and operate on that premise? And he says, the narrative has to change when it comes to reforming the criminal justice system. And by that he means you've got to deconstruct certain ideas that are just not true, that lead to all manner of injustice and a lack of mercy, that lead to very draconian laws upon the books. You've got to deconstruct those and you've got to replace them with better ideas that are more nuanced, more understanding to more of the details. You have to change the narrative. And until that narrative changes, nothing will change. And when I thought about that, there is more truth to that statement than perhaps even he knew. Because in that moment, he's talking about, look, if you want to reform, you want to bring justice and mercy to the criminal justice system, then you have to change the narrative about how you think about what needs reform. 
But when you think very carefully about his own story, I think he would agree if I said this. You know what other narrative has to change? The narrative about yourself. The narrative about one through whom the mercy comes. The narrative about one through whom justice might prevail and roll down like water. Not only does it have to change about what you think needs help, it has to change about you as the one through whom that help must come. And you know why I think he would agree with that? Because he himself says, of himself, to explain why he does what he does, he said this, I realized that I do what I do because I'm broken. And these are my people, the community of the broken. In other words, the reason he takes up the cause of those who are wrongly convicted and incarcerated is because, not because he sees himself primarily as a brilliant, erudite, um, well-respected, well-spoken um, uh, man on their behalf. He thinks of him primarily as one who is broken. And therefore, it is not an us and them sort of mentality in his mind. It is only an us. For him to persevere in that work, the narrative had to change about himself. Why do I say that? Friends, if the exalted life stoops, then there's only one thing that will allow us to take up that idea and persevere in it. Otherwise, we will pass by on the other side. And the only thing that will change that in us is if the narrative about ourselves changes. What, therefore, will change the narrative about us, how we think of ourselves? That would be the gospel. If you think of yourself as heroic that's out to go change the world, you will falter. If you think you've come to rescue people because you have something more than them, you will falter. In fact, you might even drift into something that's more insidious than you know. But something has to change about the way you think about yourself. And I, my argument to you, as is the argument of this text, is that the narrative has to change about you, and the gospel does it. The exalted life stoops indiscriminately, personally, sacrificially, and purposively. Why? Because it believes something deeply. What must it believe if the exalted life will stoop? That there was an exalted one who stooped to exalt you. In that movie, Stranger Than Fiction, eventually the person who is writing that story and narrating it, unbeknownst to Will Ferrell's character, she writes herself into the story. Oh, friends, that is precisely what Jesus does in his own cross. He tells a story about a good Samaritan, and then, if you will, he writes himself into the story by being that Samaritan. He is the one who everybody thinks is an outsider. He is the stumbling block that nobody can get their head around and who thinks he is worthy of being murdered. And they think it's an act of righteousness that he does it. What does he do? He comes to us in our need. We weren't just sort of left for half dead. We weren't just mostly dead. We were all dead. And he comes to us in our need and meets us comprehensively in the deepest of our needs. 
and he withholds nothing back from himself. He gives everything. He doesn't just sort of bring the donkey, bring the wine and the oil, and then write some instructions on how to take care of yourself so that when he wakes up from his coma, he knows what to do for himself. He does the work for us. He takes us to rescue. He takes us to safety. And when he does that, he meets our greatest need because he has a greater goal for us, and that is a restoration unto who God is. The forgiveness of our sin, the knowledge of our belonging to God, the inheritance that is kept in heaven without spot or blemish that will neither wrinkle nor fade. He writes himself into the story so that we might think deeply and differently about our own narrative so that you and I might not feel more inclined to pass by on the other side. And do you know why that is so important for us to believe that that's what he did for us? Because when you believe that he showed you mercy, and mercy like no one could, and mercy that was fully finished, you know why that matters? It matters because now you don't have to show mercy to get his mercy. Rather, you show mercy because you believe he showed you mercy first. And you show mercy not merely on the strength of his example of mercy. Rather, you show mercy on the basis of the spirit he gives to you as a gift to assist you in it. That's why it matters. So what do you and I do with it? Where do we go with it? If you don't believe in this narrative, I invite you to believe it. I invite you to believe that he wrote himself into your story to convince you that your need is greater than you'll ever know and his capacity to meet it is greater still. Believe that. But what is to be done? Kevin Antlitz, the name I mentioned at the very beginning of the service, he asked himself that question. We are left with the question, what is one to do? And he says, well, one thing we cannot do is nothing. But the other thing we cannot do is everything. And then he quotes a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest named Theophan the Recluse. Apparently he was an introvert. How many of us would like to take up that job? But he answers the question that we all ask. What is to be done? Nothing in particular. Just that which presents itself to each one according to the circumstances of his life and which is demanded by the individual events with which each of us meets. That's all. I'm not here to introduce to you a brand new initiative of Grace Mills River. We're already seeking to do mercy in our parishes, among our deacons and deaconesses, among our elders, and wherever else that mercy could be offered. And that's why I might end with this idea from a, a theologian named Paul Ricoeur. He said this, one does not have a neighbor. I make myself someone's neighbor. Jesus makes it very clear. He changes the question, not who is my neighbor, rather, what is it to become a neighbor? And one becomes a neighbor when one takes up the mantle of mercy. So I might say to you, by way of introduction, is that look over your fence. Look down the corridor of your apartment building and see whatever presents itself, each one according to the circumstances of his life, and become 
a neighbor. You don't have neighbors, you just have people you live nearby. Neighbors are those unto whom you might render mercy only because you believe deeply that you have been shown a mercy you could never measure. That's enough, let's pray. Oh, Father, how easy it is for me to speak of that in words. How much harder it is to express that in deeds, but only because you have shown us mercy. And though we are not out to compensate you for what you did, we can't. And though we're not out to prove something to you, you're not looking for that. And though we are not out to get from you what you've already given, you, you're, not, you're not waiting, you're not holding back. You've already shown us mercy. That's who you are. Father, we ask that you would help us in the power of your spirit on the basis of the shed blood of your son to see the privilege of being one who might be considered an outsider, but would love all sorts of outsiders and insiders, and to know that we are not in us and them, that we are all in us. We're all in need of mercy. Surely you've known it. Surely you've shown it. Help us to see the grace and the glory of that, and let us labor on the glory. Amen.